country blues are getting me down. Oh, escape those dreary 20th century blues. Oh, Welcome back to episode 12 of Talking Modernism, the podcast about the 1920s and 30s and how our grandparents and great-grandparents changed their world. I'm your host, Michael Hauptman. Last episode, I spoke of how the technical practice of streamlining evolves into a wonderfully evocative style of 1930s commercial design known as Streamline Modern. In this episode, I'll talk about how the style took particular root in Depression-era America and also use the style as an opportunity to discuss how critics viewed modern art in the 1930s. The Great Depression and the Birth of Planned Obsolescence In the last episode, I mentioned the contributions of Le Corbusier and Eric Mendelssohn to Streamline Modern. Le Corbusier was Swiss and Mendelssohn was German, but it was America that would come to be identified most closely with Streamline Modern, and this was due to a number of factors. The first was the impact of the Great Depression, which saw the consumer section in America suffer a deep and sustained collapse, as a fearful populace went on a spending strike and hoarded their money. If the economy was to be restarted, the public would need to be convinced to start spending again. But if money was tight, how could a consumer who already owned, say, a perfectly good radio or refrigerator be convinced to replace it? The answer was styling. As a 1930 article in the American Magazine of Art recommended, Customer dissatisfaction can be generated through the new merchandising device known as styling of goods. Goods are to be redesigned in the modern spirit to make them markedly new and encourage new buying. This will result in the displacement of still useful things by making them outdated, old-fashioned, obsolete. And where were the industrial designers who would do this restyling? Up until the mid-1920s, America by and large did not have professional industrial designers, a profession that had its genesis in the German Deutsche Werkbund in the early 1900s. Ernest Kolken, the author of the article I just quoted, was the head of an advertising agency, and it was from the advertising industry that were to come the first group of American industrial designers, including luminaries such as Raymond Lowy, Walter Teague, Gilbert Road, Norman Bel Geddes, and the New Zealand-born Joseph Sinnell. And they would dominate American design for the next 20 years. None except Lowy had training in engineering or manufacturing. Rather, they all had a background to a greater or lesser degree in advertising and graphic design they would bring their understanding of customer desires and motivations to the task of restarting American consumption. 
The roughly 65 years between 1880 and 1945 are sometimes referred to as the Machine Age, a period where technological advances in electricity, precision engineering and mass production saw an unprecedented succession of new machines and appliances, ranging from the home radio to the automobile to the automated milking machine. At the start of the machine age, there was not too much effort into making a manufactured object tastefully attractive. Indeed, the arts and crafts movement of the late 1880s had formed in reaction to the early ham-fisted attempts at applying decoration to machines and appliances. And the later designs of the Deutsche Werkbund and the Bauhaus that evolved from the arts and crafts movement did not attempt to conceal, or indeed they emphasised, the essentially functional nature of a machine. Applied decorations were done away with, but cogs, cams and battery terminals were all left on show, for instance in the iconic desk fan designed in 1908 by Peter Behrens, one of the founders of the Deutsche Werkbund. This was a very different aesthetic from the smooth flowing surfaces and aerodynamic shapes displayed on the Pioneer Zephyr that we saw in the last episode. So in order to restyle machines in the modern streamline idiom, the new breed of American designers hid the workings of an appliance under a smooth, typically teardrop, teardrop or egg-shaped casing. Recall that the egg is an essentially hydrodynamic shape. Take, for instance, the Model 150 upright vacuum cleaner that Henry Dreyfus designed for the Hoover Company in 1936. Before Dreyfus's involvement with the company, most Hoover vacuum cleaners consisted of a black cylindrical motor on an aluminium base. This was the norm for more than 20 years. In 1936 Model 150, however, the mechanical workings were now completely hidden from sight under a teardrop-shaped black case atop a magnesium base. This streamlined encasing of appliances, clean lining as designer Raymond Lowey called it, gave visual clarity to the function of machines by removing confusing detail and clutter. And indeed, it's, and indeed, it's a design convention that survives to the present day. Like many appliances of the 1930s, the casing for the Hoover Model 150 was made from a new wonder material, Bakelite, the world's first fully synthetic plastic. Bakelite was an ideal material for casings. It's a good insulator, it feels pleasant to the touch, it's able to be coloured, shaped and moulded, and it was cheaper than steel or wood, especially after its US patent expired in 1927. And the gentle curves and rounded shapes of Streamline Modern facilitated the even flow of molten, of molten Bakelite resin during the moulding process. A curved plastic piece was easy to remove from its mould and was simple to finish and polish. Its rounded form was durable, devoid of corners or points which might chip or break off. In short, Bakelite and Streamline Modern were made for each other. The Art Deco style of the 1925 Paris Expo had tended to be a facade type of design with decoration applied to a single face of an object. 
but especially when realised in Bakelite, Streamline Modern had a more plastic conception of an object as something to be seen from all angles. It would be wrong to think that Streamline Modern's embrace of manufacturing was simply a superficial exercise in aesthetics. Its designers also sought to create designs that significantly lowered manufacturing costs for their clients and improved also product performance for the end consumer. In 1932, for instance, Norman Bell Geddes designed the Oriole gas cooker for the Standard Gas Equipment Company, creating in the process the prototype of the freestanding stove that we still use today. He simplified the existing stove layout, eliminating projections and dirt-catching corners and minimising gaps and joins. Oven doors acted as shelves when opened and closed flush with the front surface. Surface burners were covered with a hinged panel when not in use. Legs were eliminated along with the need to clean under them and the resulting space was used instead for a pot drawer. The stove's ivory white vitreous enamel and chromed hardware made for easy cleaning. Indeed, with the Oriole, Bell Geddes streamlined, pardon the pun, standard gas's entire line of stoves, which had included around a hundred different models and sizes. In its place, he designed 12 standard modules that could be combined in a variety of ways. His use of spring clip speeded assembly, and by relieving the enameled parts of structural tension, he reduced cracking and flaking during shipment. The aim of clean lining, to simplify and declutter, had strong parallels with functional design movements like Bauhaus. But also akin to expressionism, Streamline Modern went beyond the functional in its desire to appeal to consumers' emotions as well as satisfying functional needs. With the sleek and stylish Model 150, Hoover had made the humble upright vacuum cleaner glamorous. This mix of functionality and glamour is particularly evident in another vacuum cleaner of the 1930s, the Model 30 barrel vacuum cleaner that designer Laurel Guild created for Electrolux in 1937. Here the cases of polished aluminium, with the slanted front and parallel speed lines, sitting atop low metal skids and looking for all the world like a miniature version of a streamliner train. You might only be vacuuming dog hair from the living room carpet, but in your mind, you could be at the cocktail bar of the Pioneer Zephyr. Streamline Modern took the modern but extreme ornament is a crime ethos of pure functionalism and moderated it for the mass market. It eschewed applied decoration. The only purely decorative motives in Streamline Modern tended to be parallel streamlines but the overall styling of the object was evocative of the modern streamlined age. And in doing so, they managed to successfully develop a genuinely popular modern style for the mass market. The austere stylings of the Bauhaus and Le Corbusier, whilst displayed in museums and acknowledged as masterpieces of modern design, had limited appeal in the consumer market finding buyers mainly amongst avant-garde members of the upper middle class. 
Streamline Modern style, however, became the dominant consumer style in much of the Western world by the end of the 1930s. The Quest for a Modern American Style The second factor in America's embrace of Streamline Modern was the quest by that country beginning in the late 1920s to establish a uniquely American style of modern design. Distinct from innovations from overseas like the Art Deco style of the 1925 Paris Expo or the international functional style of Le Corbusier and the Bauhaus. Last series in episode 8, I described how a 1910 Paris exhibition of furniture by the Deutsche Werkbund had spurred France to train its own industrial designers as part of a drive to develop a uniquely French style of applied arts, a process that culminated in the Art Deco style of the mid-1920s. A similar process was now taking place in America. A series of exhibitions of modern designs from Europe had highlighted how far America applied art has had fallen off the pace, limited to rehashing old designs or copying the new European styles rather than producing genuine innovation. And this sparked calls for a modern design style with a local American sensibility. And this was part of a much broader inward turn by America in the 1920s. Like most countries at that time, America had a strong nationalist sensibility, but this was exacerbated by a reaction to the chaos of World War I, which had strengthened the conviction that the old world of Europe was irredeemably decadent, and it would serve America's interest to turn inwards and limit engagements with Europe in particular. International relationships were to be formulated not as part of a broad narrative of philosophy like protecting the free world as the American government tended to operate during the Cold War, but rather where each transaction and interaction was assessed more narrowly as to its benefit or otherwise to America, an approach advocated by Donald Trump and his ilk. America cut its immigrant intake from 1 million a year at the start of the 20th century to less than 150,000 a year in the 1920s. It refused to become a member of the League of Nations, the forerunner to the United Nations, established after World War I, even though originally this was an initiative of the US President Woodrow Wilson. And part of its response to the Great Depression was to impose steep import tariffs via the Smoot-Hawley Bill of 1930 that fatally weakened international trade across the globe. Norman Bell Geddes was one of the most prominent of America's new breed of industrial designers, or consumer engineers as they were sometimes known. A bit like Paul Poiret and Greta Shudlotsky that I spoke about in Series 1, Bell Geddes was an outsized character, managing to pack in at least two careers into a short life which had him dying at the age of 65. Born in 1863 in the town of Adrian, Michigan, by 1928 he was one of America's leading theatrical designers, designing sets for the New York Metropolitan Opera, the New York Theatre and in Hollywood for director Cecil B. DeMille. 
He also found time for a series of meticulous, insanely detailed games he created in the 1920s and early 30s for the amusement of his friends. The first was an ingenious electric horse racing game that had 20 horses running on copper rails pulled by nearly invisible silk threads connected to unseen pulleys. The mechanism of this horse race was sophisticated enough to allow different odds for individual horses. And every Saturday night for three years, a crowd of up to 100 people, including luminaries such as Amelia Earhart, Cole Porter and Charlie Chaplin, would descend on the Nutshell Jockey Club at Bell Geddes Manhattan Basement at East 37th Street to bet on his ingenious electric horse race and drink his liquor. The Nutshell Jockey Club was disbanded in about 1927 and a victim of its extreme popularity. Neighbours and police complained about the raucous crowds every Saturday night. And I don't think it's purely coincidence that his wife left him at about this time. But Bell Geddes replaced the Nutshell Jockey Club with an even grander enterprise known simply as the War Game. Several times a week, teams of participants visited the Bel Geddes residence to play at being the general staff of two imaginary countries at war, with armies and fleets laid out on a detailed relief map 24 foot long and 4 foot wide. To give you an idea of the scale and detail, Geddes had the complete navies of all five leading powers constructed, the battleships built to exact scale, 1 inch to 100 feet, complete with brass hulls, armaments and planes. This particular toy reputedly ended up costing Geddes $13,000, which is about $230,000 in today's money. Players were drawn from all branches of industry and arts and academia, as well as from the military, and regulars included a retired British Brigadier General, an Italian cavalry captain, the former chief of New York City detectives, and five times international chess champion Edward Lasker. For a time, the New York Sun newspaper dedicated a weekly column to the war game, reporting developments in breathless prose as if they were dispatches from the front line of a real war. Bell Geddes's career was so eventful that in his 365-page autobiography, Miracle in the Evening, published in 1960, shortly after his death in 1958. He never really mentions his achievements in his second career as a pioneer in industrial design, though they are summarised in the appendix in the autobiography listing his achievements, which modestly stretches over 10 pages. That appendix states that in 1927, Bell Geddes established the profession of industrial designer, that is, Bell Geddes was the first designer of national reputation to surround himself with a staff of specialists and offer industrial design services. And from the outset, Bell Geddes adopted Streamline Modern as the house style for his design studio. Indeed, he was to become the main public spokesman for the style. In 1932, he published a very popular book, Horizons, which was full of futuristic streamlined cars, planes, ships and houses, and indeed trains like the Pioneer Zephyr, though his book anticipated its launch by two years. 
Bell Geddes developed a public profile, contributing articles on Streamline Modern for periodicals like Life magazine and the Saturday Evening Post. Bell Geddes' vision was a celebration of the positive aspects of the machine age, the exciting promise that technology and mass production would soon achieve a brave new world free from want and toil, neatly planned and full of technological wonders. Streamline Modern suggested a preview of that future, and indeed, in pulp magazines of the interwar period like Amazing Stories, in the Buck Rogers serials shown at the flicks, and in highbrow movies like 1936 Shape of Things to Come, the futuristic worlds depicted there were all heavily influenced by Streamline Modern. The futuristic worlds depicted there were all heavily influenced by Streamline Modern. This promise of a bright future resonated strongly with Depression-era America of 1932. America had emerged from the catastrophe of World War I relatively unscathed, and by 1922 had overtaken Australia to become the richest country in the world on a per capita basis. The end of the 1920s saw an America assured of its power, morality and wisdom, and confident that Providence favoured an exceptional America amongst all the nations in the world. But a recession that began in 1928 had by 1929 turned into the Great Depression, which was to affect America more severely and for longer than in many other countries. And this was due in part to an austerity program under President Herbert Hoover, and also by the insistence of the chairman of the New York Federal Reserve, Benjamin Strong, that the US dollar remained linked to the gold standard. The period 1931 to 1933 marked the depth of the Depression in America, with the economy shrunk by a third and 5,000 banks gone out of business. Unemployment was at 25%, and shanty towns full of the newly destitute, Hoovervilles as they were known, dotted towns and cities, one even springing up in New York Central Park. Some Americans began to lose faith in the promise of the American dream. But in 1932, confidence had begun to return with the election of the charismatic and energetic Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And Bell Getty's futuristic visions held forth the similar promise that America's wealth technological leadership and vast industrial base would soon return the nation to prosperity. This hunger for reassurance must be part of the reason why the debut of the futuristic pioneer Zephyr Streamliner that I talked about in the last episode attracted so much attention, even though few of the one million visitors on its 1934 publicity tour could have afforded such a luxurious form of transport. Futurama Bell Getty's vision of the future was to achieve its ultimate expression in the Futurama exhibit that he designed for the General Motors Pavilion at the 1939 New York's World Fair. The inspiration, by the way, for the Matt Gronig cartoon series. Easily the most popular exhibit at the fair, 
People stood in line for hours in order to experience a vision of the future 20 years hence, or as the banner proclaimed, Come tour the future with General Motors, a transcontinental flight over America in 1960. What will we see? What changes will transpire? This magic Aladdin-like flight through time and space is Norman Belgetti's conceptions of the many wonders that may develop in the not-too-distant future. Once inside, spectators sat on 322 carry-go-round seats that tilted forward and travelled along a 15-minute tour simulating an aeroplane ride on a panoramic vision of the future called Highways and Horizons. Spread out between the visitors' dangling feet was a vast miniature landscape, the largest scale model ever constructed, comprising some 500,000 buildings, almost 2 million trees in 18 different species with imported moss for foliage, and at least 50,000 motor vehicles, including 10,000 mounted on tracks so they seem to drive down the streets and highways. The attention to detail was incredible. The diorama featured animated waterfalls, low clouds fashioned from chemical vapours that clung to the mountainsides, and exacting replicas of clotheslines and cow patties that the World's Fair visitors would never even notice. The ride was a huge technical achievement and it took 18 months and the efforts of 2,800 people to build. The ride was devised so that narration was precisely synchronised for each visitor, and this was courtesy of a 22-ton sound machine that played 150 individually synchronised loops while the passengers were carried on a conveyor system that turned corners and changed elevations with a complex wishbone coupling on the cars that ensured a smooth journey. The design calculations alone took four months to complete. The ride carried 2,200 visitors per hour, 28,000 each day. By the time the fair was over, over 5 million visitors had experienced Futurama, all apparently without a single technical hitch. Fortunately, there's extensive film footage of Futurama, and I've included a couple of links on the podcast website. Futurama showed a lush and verdant vision of the American Midwest, and this in itself was a statement of optimism, as the Midwest in 1939 was still being ravaged by the Dust Bowl commemorated in Steinbeck's novel The Grapes of Wrath. Bell Geddes took his spectators on a journey from farmlands to forests, over the mountains, and finally into a gleaming city of the future, and all linked by multi-lane highways full of cloverleaf intersections. Futurama was, after all, sponsored by General Motors. At the end of the ride, the visitor exited into a replica of one of the city blocks from the city in the diorama, as if they'd actually stepped forward into the year 1960, and were given a blue and white badge that proclaimed, I have seen the future. With the benefit of hindsight, the lovingly detailed dioramas of a gleaming city appear more dystopian than utopian. All historic buildings have been raised, freeways dominate the landscape, tower blocks placed on sterile plaza, and no hint of public transport. But at the time, to Americans experiencing slums and dust bowls and economic depression, 
It all seemed an inspirational wonder. Streamline Modern Valid Art or Superficial Commercialism Streamline Modern might have been one of the dominant styles of the modern period, but critics and historians have often been too reluctant to include it as a legitimate part of the modernist movement. In March 1934, only one month before the debut of the pioneer Zephyr, an exhibition entitled Machine Art opened at New York's Museum of Modern Art. You would have thought that an exhibition with the title Machine Art would have taken the opportunity to showcase Streamline Modern, a new style both American and, and machine inspired, but this was not the case. And this ambivalence is still somewhat in evidence today. In 2006, the prestigious and authoritative Victorian and Albert Museum held a major exhibition entitled Modernism, Designing a New World, 1914 to 1939. In the exhibition's lavish catalogue, Streamline Modern is relegated to the last of 11 chapters titled Mass Market Modernism. Now, the reason for this reluctance to acknowledge Streamline Modern is a tendency, very pronounced in the modernist period but still somewhat in evidence today, to draw a line between high art, fine art, art for art's sake as it's sometimes characterised, and styles like Streamline Modern that are the creation of the marketplace. Let's look more closely at the 1934 Machine Art Exhibition. And I'm drawing here on an excellent 2012 book on the subject by Professor Jennifer Marshall. The New York Museum of Modern Art, MoMA as it's known, was formed in 1929 with the aim of promoting modern art to America. At that time, the US did not much contribute to the revolution that was occurring in art in the early years of the 20th century, with movements like Cubism, Expressionism and Surrealism. As in England, American museums were generally loath to acquire or display works of the avant-garde. Indeed, America declined an invitation to exhibit at the modernist-inspired Paris Expo of 1925 because, in the words of Herbert Hoover, Secretary of Commerce at the time, there was no modern art in America. The new MoMA was an immediate success, staging a number of landmark exhibitions under its director Alfred Barr and his close collaborator Philip Johnson. Exhibitions such as the 1932 Exhibition of Modern Architecture that gave birth to the label International Style, and a hugely popular Van Gogh exhibition in 1935 which first brought the artist to the attention of the mass American public. Moma's remit covered both fine arts, painting, sculpture and the like, and applied arts, especially architecture. The 1934 exhibition would focus on applied arts, displaying 660 machine-produced items across six categories – industrial units, household and office equipment, kitchenware, household furnishings and accessories, scientific instruments, and laboratory glass and porcelain. The objects displayed had been designed with practical rather than decorative intent, 
but nonetheless were beautiful in their simple forms and undisguised materials, typically with a highly polished machine finishing. The items were arranged to emphasise common forms. Plates and serving platters created a wall of circles. Cocktail shakers and beakers an array of cylinders. Perfectly spherical billiard balls. Springs, screws and ship's propellers embodying the spiral. The exhibition was a huge success. 30,000 people visited over its eight-week run and it then toured America for a further four years. A celebrity jury that included Amelia Earhart judged the most beautiful object in the show and the public could vote for their favourite. The term machine art entered public consciousness. The term was invented for the exhibition and had apparently come to the curator Philip Johnson at four in the morning in the course of a boozy night on the town. Prohibition had had ended the previous year. The entire exhibition was a celebration of minimalist design, of the belief by Albert Barr, MoMA's founding director, that for manufactured objects, their beauty came from ideal forms, simple geometric shapes and solids arising from their essential functional form. The exhibition's catalogue opened with a quote from Plato that captured this philosophy. By beauty of shapes, I do not mean, as most people would suppose, the beauty of living figures or of pictures, but I mean straight lines and circles, and shapes, planar or solid, made for them by lathe, ruler and square. These are not, like other things, beautiful relatively, but always and absolutely. This assertion that minimalism was the only valid scheme for making manufactured objects beautiful, placed applied art in a wider framework that Alfred Barr used to structure and explain to the American public the entire modern art movement, commencing with post-impressionism in the 1890s, progressing through fauvism, cubism and expressionism, before ultimately splitting into two streams of abstract art by 1936 non-geometric and geometric. The geometric stream embodied the machine aesthetic on display in the 1934 exhibition and the Bauhaus Design School and the International School of Architecture were explicitly included as elements in this artistic framework. Indeed, the 1934 exhibition included chairs by Marcel Brew of the Bauhaus and by Le Corbusier, champion of the international style. Where did this leave Streamline Modern? On the face of it, Streamline Modern embodied many of the qualities of the items on display at the 1934 exhibition. Like Bauhaus, Streamline Modern emphasised functionalism and simplicity, and we saw this with Bel Geddes' design of the Oriel gas cooker. And Streamline Modern was also based on ideal forms, forms arising from aerodynamics, the teardrop and the French curve. But for Alfred Barr, Streamline Modern forfeited any claims to artistic merit due to its commercial context. In the introduction to the Machine Art Exhibition catalogue, he wrote, There has developed in America a desire for styling objects for advertising. 
Styling a commercial object gives it more eye appeal and therefore helps sales. Principles such as streamlining often receive homage out of all proportion to their applicability. According to the high temple of modernism that MoMA was to become, there was a clear distinction between mass-market art and high art. Mass-market art was a sordid commercial practice, the essence of kitsch, a consumer tricked by false sentiment deployed by unscrupulous capitalists whose sole motive was to make a sale. High art, on the other hand, came from an individual's artistic insight or from universal artistic truths like Plato's ideal forms. High art was autonomous, not involved with the concerns of the marketplace. This rejection of commercial advertising was typical of modernism. Modernism, after all, was the philosophy of the avant-garde, aiming to remake culture, politics and society in opposition to that of the Victorian age, that golden era of the middle class and of the free market. Karl Marx, one of the heroes of the age of modernism, saw advertising's appeal to the emotional rather than the functional as a bad thing, fetishising, as he called it, a commodity, and so disguising and inflating its true value, which for Marx, as it was for Albert Barr, was narrowly defined by its function. Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, published in 1932 at the depth of the Great Depression, describes a dystopian future where the public have become inured to advertising and the government has to resort to subliminal messaging in order to maintain demand for new products and keep the capitalist economy ticking along. But could modernist art really claim to be above sordid considerations of profit when it commanded such high prices? In 1973, the National Gallery of Australia purchased a Jackson Pollock, Pollock painting, Blue Poles, for 1.3 million Australian dollars, equivalent to about 18 million dollars today, a purchase that was subject to huge controversy at the time. Estimates of its value today put Blue Poles in a range between 100 and 350 million dollars. How could modern art be autonomous when it had become an exercise in conspicuous consumption by the ultra-wealthy? Contradictions like this were to be pointed out by the post-modern movement of the 1960s and 70s, a fascinating subject I'd like to explore in future episodes. Undismayed by its rejection by the critics, Streamline Modern enjoyed a long reign dominating American commercial design up until the 1960s, evolving over time to become doo-wop and Reagan Gothic styles of the 1950s, and then the Jet Age design of the 1960s. And as the streamlined form of the Douglas DC-3 was replaced by new symbols of progress, the design influence for the style changed, first the Atom and the Rocket in the 1950s, than the Boeing 707 jetliner of the 1960s. And so we come to the end of the episode. I hope you've enjoyed these last two episodes exploring Streamline Modern. I definitely think Norman Bel Geddes would be my pick for the person I'd most like to have as a dinner party guest. 
And if there's an aspect of modernism that you think would make an interesting topic for this podcast, please drop me an email at talkingmodernism at gmail.com. And finally, join me next time when I'll consider one of the more obscure aspects of modernism, the rise and fall of the Jewish joke. I look forward to speaking with you then. Mm -hmm.